Mateys, welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. We're back from shore leave with a trunk full of classical doubloons. In today's episode, we've got a swashbuckling interview with Captain Raymond Yu. A jaunty news quiz featuring an actual skull and crossbones. And a Beethovenian sword fight with the good ship Van Magazine. So doff your tricorns and shiver your timbers, you're in for a trip on the high seas. Yes, you are. Sam, what do A.R. Rahman's Jaiho, Alan Menken's Under the Sea and Eminem's Lose Yourself have in common? Well, they're all superb songs. I think we can agree on that. Uh, I like The Chub Plays the Tub and The Bass Plays the Bass from Under the Sea. It's my favourite lyric from that particular song. Is it Oscar-related? Eminem's got one and Alan Menken's got a hat full. Yeah, you're right. They've all won the Oscar for Best Original Song. Well done. Other past winners include Chim Chim Cheree, The Way You Look Tonight, and the chillingly coercive Baby It's Cold Outside. Mm. The 2021 Academy Awards have announced this year's shortlist. Any suggestions for what might be included? Tim, I have no recollection of the last 12 months. I can't remember any films that have come out. <laughs> that all. is a hard question. Uh, I mean, I've, I don't know what's come out. I've just been watching old, mostly Marvel films. Is there any from them? No. It, we've got Loyal, Brave, True from Milan and Hear My Voice from The Trial of the Chicago 7. Okay. Those are the only two that I recognised. Oh, apart from a surprise entry from Borat, a subsequent movie film. Listeners may remember Wuhan Flu, sung by Borat, disguised as Country Dave oh, at yeah. a pro-Trump militia rally. Can you remember any of the lyrics? Oh, I can't. Are there some bad taste ones about... Um, the Saudis and Khashoggi weren't there. I mean, you know. Yeah, that's it. He did a call and response of USA is the best. We don't need no COVID test. WHO, what are we going to do? Chop them up like the Saudis do. And they went for it. They really went for it. And if it wins, we might end up with a performance at the ceremony in March. So here's hoping. The shortlist for best original score has also been announced. Care to make a guess at what's included? Um, well, I did really enjoy the score for Soul with uh, John Baptiste on it. I thought that was rather superb. Uh, but was I can't remember if he counts as the composer for the whole thing, does he? It's actually three composers. You're, you're, you're right. It's John Baptiste, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, the latter two having already won in 2010 for their work on the social network. Mm, they do all the sort of whale music synth stuff, don't they? The... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good looking look. We've got Harry Gregson Williams score for Milan. He's one of the sort of Hans Zimmer acolytes. And Terence Blanchard score for Defy of Bloods. That was a great Uh, film. I really enjoyed that. Would recommend. 
Mm -hmm. Thoroughly recommend. Next question. What has the US ambassador to Vietnam, Dan Crittenbrink, been up to this week? Oh, no, I've seen this. It's uh, it's bad rapping, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, an extraordinary piece of diplomacy. He's recorded an original rap and music video <laughs> in honour of Tet, the Lunar New Year, styling himself as the boy from Hanoi. In the video, Crittenbrink sips tea and walks the streets with an entourage that includes a real Vietnamese rapper, Wowie. Would you like to hear it? Nothing would bring in the Lunar New Year better. Time for introductions are at hand. Hi, my name is Dan. I'm from Nebraska. I'm not a big city boy. Then three years ago, I moved to Hanoi. Check the calendar, Ted is coming soon. Kanta and Da Nang are in the mood. Suen, suen, oi, suen, dive. Clean the house now, friends are on the way. Which spiritual leader recently offered comfort to the global music community, Sam? Oh, I don't know. Um, I saw once the Dalai Lama was really supportive of Brooklyn Nine-Nine when that got cancelled. So maybe he's prepared to step in <laughs> on other cultural issues. Uh, about That's a stunning fact. I didn't know that. Yeah. I love that. It was actually Pope Francis. He was on top form during the Pontifical Council for Cultures international meeting this week. What a title. Expressing his, I know, expressing his sympathy to the musicians who have seen their lives and professions disrupted by the demands of distancing. And actually mm. quoting Cervantes, he said, Donde hay musica no puede haber cosa mala. How's he Spanish, Sam? Uh, it is non-existent. What does it mean? Okay. <laughs> Where there is music... There can be nothing bad. Hmm. Okay. Maybe true. <laughs> Possibly. Francis also took a, a Cajun turn when he said, a, a quote-unquote, a good musician knows the value of silence, the value of pause. The alternation between sound and silence is fruitful and allows for listening, which plays a fundamental role in every dialogue. What do you make of that? Sam? I was just valuing the pause and the silence, actually, Tim. <laughs> uh, but I realise, I mean, if it were pontifical council, he is the one guy in the world who can really pontificate. Like, that is actually what it's called when he talks, isn't it? So, yeah. I mean, well, that, it is some pretty good pontificating there, I think. Yeah, top work from, uh, from Francis. It, absolutely. Moving on, I've got two German news stories for you. Firstly, what do you think Federal Culture Minister Monica Grutkes has been up to? Oh, probably showing up Oliver Dowden, isn't it? I'd know I'd know we've got a good vaccination programme, but it's not everything, is it? Yeah, yeah, correct. She's secured an extra billion euros in arts relief to cover the second COVID lockdown. Well done, Monica. Secondly, why has Bavarian folk singer Angelo Kelly been fined three thousand euros? I don't know, but Angelo Kelly sounds like he should be an R and B artist. He's right in the <laughs> yeah. the Venn diagram. D'Angelo R. Kelly. Yeah. Um, I don't know, why was he fined €3,000? He was found guilty of violating child labour laws for having his four-year-old son perform on stage with him during an evening concert. Uh, L Little William apparently sang What a Wonderful World, but because it was at 8pm and German law only permits children aged three to six to take part in musical performances between the hours of eight and five, 
it was deemed illegal. Somebody better inform the Von Trapp family, although I suppose they've got bigger things to worry about. I think you're, you've got an argument for and against state intervention there, Tim. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? It's like a microcosm. Finally, Sam, if you were heavy metal enthusiast and novelty electric guitar maker Prince Midnight, what is the most rock and roll material you can think of to construct a new instrument? Well, there's no evidence to suggest that I'm not actually Prince Midnight. Your if is yes, uh, that's quite true. conditional there. Uh, I don't know if it... Uh, I'd be giving away my alias if I were to give the correct answer to him, so I, I will feign ignorance. I'll tell you, Mr. Midnight's latest guitar was in fact built using the skeleton of his uncle, Philippe, oh. also, also a huge metal fan. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you the story. After he died in Greece in the 90s, Philippe's skeleton was donated to a local school and Mr. Midnight managed to get the remains repatriated to the US and he built what he's calling his Philippe Skelecaster with the help of the folks at Dean Guitars in Florida. Wonderful pun work. I know. He said in a recent interview with Guitar World that it plays fine, though it also has quirks. <laughs> Understatement of the century. Mm. Um, now Uncle Philippe can shred for all eternity. That's how he would want it. Uh, we've got a quick clip of Uncle Philippe in action. <laughs> Self-isolation There's no conversation My one consolation Model transportation I have a thing where I make models of buses. Oh, it is good to be back thinking about music again. Mm, back aboard the good ship analysis. Peering out my porthole at the starry firmament of pieces yet to be discovered. But before we set out on more musical adventures... I felt it might be time to remind everyone of some of the analytical ground rules and what we can reasonably hope to do when analysing. A sort of best practice disclaimer. Exactly. Is this because of something I said? Has something got you riled up? Tim, your thoroughly thought-through whimsy could never antagonise me. Indeed, I'm not riled up at all. I've been set thinking by an article, A Most Violent Year, published online by Van Magazine, written by Olivia Giovetti. It's a really thought-provoking piece, and we've linked it in the description below, so please go read it. Mm, yeah, I remember sending it to you as soon as I'd read it and thinking it deserves some chewing over. Yeah, we both really like Van and Giovetti's writing, and the article raises some really interesting points, but it also had some things I happen to disagree with, and so I thought by discussing those features, it would arm our listeners so that in future they can be more critical of the things that come out of our mouths. Dangerous, Sam, creating a, a critical listenership. Analysis. Giovetti's article is about Beethoven and the celebration of his 250th birthday. Mm, yes, the semi-quincentennial. But why is it called a most violent year? Well, it draws some of the violence from our old friend Dr Susan McClary and her famous book, Feminine Endings. In which she likens Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to a sexual assault. That's the one. And this highlights our first analysis disclaimer. The first pit to avoid falling into is bad analogy. 
if your reaction to a piece of music is to explain it through an analogy, that's great. An analogy like an opinion can be persuasive and illuminating. But do remember, it can't be true. Mm, there's no Turing-style decoding to be done of the Enigma variations. In the Van article, Giovetti interviews McClary, and she uses a bad analogy when she likens Beethoven's third symphony, Eroica, to Joaquin Phoenix's character in The Joker. You start with a compromised figure and then watch him battle it out until, no matter what happens, blood all over the place, you triumph. We'll be using the incredibly sympathetic voice of bassoon hero Cat McDermott so that no one takes too strong a dislike to Dr. McClary. She continues. The hero is fighting each obstacle with escalating amounts of violence. That, for me, is a bad analogy where the two things are not alike. For one, in the film The Joker, the central character has no specific goal he is hoping to achieve. He is famously an anarchist, which makes him a poor surrogate for a goal-directed analysis. And also, a flawed hero overcoming obstacles is a plot so generic it covers Johnny English and Kung Fu Panda as well. Mm, Both of which feel less intimidating. And as positive heroic arcs feel like stronger analogies to me for a bright major finale. Mm, I could liken the shape of your head to that of a water buffalo, but that's uh, less persuasive than using a ping-pong ball as the analogy. Not all analogies are equal. So what about the sexual assault analogy of the Ninth Symphony? Well, this is when you go too far, too specific. Not with what you are likening something to, but by beginning to claim that the subject matter is inherent within the piece. I'm no longer explaining the shape of your head through a ping-pong ball. I'm claiming your head is a ping-pong ball. Quite. Dr. McClary says she felt compelled to explore this side of the ninth after teaching it enough times to see a pattern of students crying, even leaving the room. This violence is triggering all of these things, and I thought, this really needs to be dealt with. She explains. You don't just sort of say, well, this is great music, too bad for you. And so I used the image of a rapist who is not able to achieve satisfaction and so just goes into strangulation mode. Is that not fair, Sam? Well, I don't think so. For pitfall number two, it's evocation. I'm going to draw here on the power of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. Just think for a minute about the kind of horse-drawn carts that Beethoven would have seen. Those two horses side by side. The breadth of those beasts harnessed together helped determine the width of the roads we use today. The roads that cars drive on and lorries transport goods on. Lorries like the ones that carried each individual component of the NASA space shuttle across the roads of Florida. The width and height of each component determined by whether it can fit down the same lanes as those horse-drawn carts that Beethoven saw. Those components now held together and flung into the stars revolving around Earth in space. What are you doing here then, Sam? I'm just pointing out that Beethoven's music is evocative. If I start talking about space over this music, it can feel linked to space because it's so ripe for creating imagery, even though Beethoven had nothing to do with the International Space Station or the shuttle. Well, that we know of. If you read a group of American undergraduates a poem, as McClary did, called The Ninth Symphony of Beethoven, understood at last as a sexual message, just before giving them ten minutes to sit and think, that music is going to start evoking certain images. 
Perhaps we could say that this music triggering students had more to do with the tragic epidemic of sexual violence in American universities than it has to do with what is actually written into the music. Yeah, you can project almost anything onto music this emotive. It doesn't mean anything you analogise or evoke is actually in the music, however. Any time you catch me trying to be that specific, just blast me off into space. This McClary controversy has been chugging away for years now, but in Giovetti's article she highlighted the abuse that has flowed back against the good doctor. Just because we happen to disagree with her, we would never want to add to that, and the fact that she has received death threats and threats of sexual assault is totally abhorrent. Mm, yeah, and the fact that it's over musicology and listening to Beethoven is even more absurd. To me, I hold up my hands at this subjective position, but I feel that this abuse is almost played as a validation of McClary's position. Hmm? Well, for disclaimer number three, we're going to talk about how just because terrible, horrendous people disagree with you, often in disgusting ways, it does not mean that you are right. Mm. So if I go up to a racist and tell them the sky is green, the fact that they are gruesome does not make them wrong when they disagree and they say the sky is blue. Yep. And certainly, you can't link this back to the composer. Beethoven fans sending messages of abuse to McClary has about as much to do with the composer as the raccoons atop the QAnon shaman's head had to do with the American insurrection. They're both dead. That terrible people have co-opted them isn't really their responsibility. Yep, on to pit tip number four. Try not to conflate a composer's reception and legacy with their actual human life writing dots on a page. So when music theorist Philip Ewell is quoted in Givetti's article saying, Beethoven is like a metonym for the toxic combination that often happens when whiteness combines with maleness in the history of the United States. That would be an example of conflation, blurring the lines between the human and the legacy. I think so. A metonym is like a close substitute when two things are so similar that you can refer to them interchangeably. Westminster for the Houses of Parliament, a number nine for a striker, Mark Wahlberg for Matt Damon. Matt Damon. But Beethoven, as a sub for aggressive white maleness in the US, doesn't feel totally interchangeable. Just checking my Grove Dictionary here, and yep, just as I suspected, Beethoven actually died quite a long time before the present day. Unfortunately, he was actually dead 34 years before the American Civil War, let alone the fermenters of contemporary division. That his legacy might have issues, or that folks who like his music often have certain conversational traits, well, that's a different kettle of fish. But the man never had much to do with the USA, and if you want to dig into his politics, try reading the text he set for the fourth movement of the night. Number five, the Boris Johnson. Uh, hello and crikey and gadzooks and uh, fair, 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 and good after morning. And, uh, hello. The Boris Johnson. Are we still talking about the toxic combination of whiteness and maleness? Well, not this time. The Dougal-headed Prime Minister may not be your number one choice for helming a pandemic response, but if you want someone to write an article which is obviously racist but that can later be claimed not to be racist, 
He's your man. Mm, letterboxes and watermelon smiles, eh? But what's this got to do with musicology, sir? The juxtaposition or the close proximity of topics and themes often lead people to understand them as linked. If you squint at a Boris Johnson article, you'll see the words like Kenya, tribal, Obama and Muslim all very close together but without explicit links between them. A sort of impressionistic style of writing. We, If Giovetti moves from talking about Beethoven to the musical theorist and noted racist Heinrich Schenker, then perhaps people will imagine a link. But there isn't? Not that I can see. Schenker is a nasty man who did, like pretty much everyone in 19th century Europe, like Beethoven's music. But he was born 40 years after Ludwig died. For a bonus disclaimer, it's then argued by Yule that you can't separate Schenker's analytical tools, which are sort of illuminating for thinking about maybe four composers, from the nasty racist man just because Schenker himself said you shouldn't separate them. Well, Sam, I point you towards the white supremacist organisation The Proud Boys in America. Now labelled a terrorist group by Canada. If they can take their name from Aladdin the Musical, and that's totally true, by the way, their name derives from their awful leader, Gavin McInnes, who didn't like the song Proud of You Boy. If they can take their name from there against the wishes and intentions of the lovely people who wrote the music for Aladdin, then I don't see why we can't take the good things the racists came up with off them. I agree. Separating art from artist is a, a long old argument about veneration and all sorts, but taking a useful analytical tool off a racist tool seems pretty easy to me. Proud of your boy I'll make you proud of your boy Believe me, bad as I've been, Ma You're in for a pleasant surprise So in summary, here are things we'll be aiming not to do in analysis sections this season. Making overreaching analogies. Mistaking evocation and suggestion for inherent secret coding. Not confusing being right with being on the opposite side to racists. Avoiding blending a composer's reception and legacy with the human. Trying not to write like Boris Johnson. And taking anything useful we can from anywhere we can, even if the person who came up with it is someone we disagree with. Proud of your boy. I'll make you proud of your boy. Believe me, bad as I and that sounds like a pretty reasonable toolkit to me. I hope so, and I hope that actually it can be used by our listeners to do their own analysis, because all an analysis involves is not abdicating your role as a listener. When you hear a new piece, what does it make you think, feel, or associate with? Everyone's response will be different, because everyone's prior experience and knowledge is different, and each of those opinions, each of those receptions, has a worth. An analysis is just trying to explain the reason for that reaction and if possible, point out some causal links, in the hope that it will illuminate someone else's listening and develop their relationship with the piece, adding to that wealth of experience and knowledge. An analysis can never claim to be right, but you might find it persuasive or just a bit thought-provoking. I've wasted time, I've wasted me So say I'm slow for my age 
You got to pick a pocket or two. Intro from Micah Levy's soundtrack to Jackie, written in 2016. The main theme from Steve McQueen's Mangrove, written by Micah Levy in 2020. You got to pick a pocket or two. I would imagine a lot of those listening to this podcast, especially in these times, aren't making the bulk of their living from their preferred vocation. Conductors who teach, composers in publishing, singers who make coffee in their local cafe. Our guest this week did, until relatively recently, fall into the same category. Raymond Yu, or Ray to anyone other than his mother, worked in IT for years before making the jump into full-time composing. The same could be said of Anthony Burgess. The composer-novelist, as he saw himself, was a musical autodidact who left a mass of unperformed scores when he died. On his centenary, the Anthony Burgess Foundation commissioned Ray to write a piece in his honour, and a recording of the resulting song cycle, The World Was Once All Miracle, hit the shelves earlier this week alongside two of his other pieces. Ray and I had a very friendly chat over Zoom before the release, in which he touched on those elements of Burgess's life that he saw reflected in his own, and which I expect resonate with many of our listeners too. Yeah, as I say, before we get into your new release with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, could we talk a bit about your more unconventional route into composing because you didn't study music as an undergraduate you were self-taught for much of your early career and I mean it wasn't all that long ago that you were working another job and composing alongside sort of in your own time is that right? That's correct I well first of all I started playing the piano when I was quite young but I academically I never really studied music it's, it's always very science-based so I study all those science subjects when I was doing my A-levels. It's all best, further best, chemistry, physics, electronics, uh, studying electrical and electronic engineering. Um, it's only when I started doing that, I really start doing composing when I'm not studying. It must have been <clears throat> pretty hard being an outlier in what is can be a closed-off world, you know, struggling to get performances. And Was it very difficult right at the beginning because you weren't, you know, you weren't able to break into that or... It was quite tough because, I, first of all, I didn't really know anyone. So I just like kind of, you know, kind of nutter. You just sit at home and, and just write notes on paper. It didn't quite knowing when you would get a chance to get your music heard. But I was lucky that to have... Uh, two things happened. I, I joined uh, what used to be called a, a Society of Promotion of New Music, SBNM, so which became Sound of Music. So I sent in my music and... Three of my pieces got shortlisted on that in three consecutive years, and then eventually they all get performed. So that was how I kind of started having performance there. And I also wrote to the American conductor, composer, pianist, Lucas Foss, and because I just told him that I was a huge fan, I really want to kind of find out more about his music. And in about 1998, I think, he was coming over, so he said, why don't we just meet up? So we did. 
we kind of formed this kind of almost like a mentorship. So and um, he eventually gave the world premiere of my first big piece in America in 2001. And what was that piece called? Distant of the Moon, which I haven't heard for years. It only been played once in America. It's for string, like the eleven strings, and it was it was it was kind of quite early piece. But it was it was quite a thing for me because I finally get to hear my music play. What was it about Lucas Foss in particular that so drew you? What was it about his music that was so inspiring to you? I think for years I, you know, I listened to music. My my background is kind of a little bit of classical, but my real background is Cantonese pop and then kind of Western pop, and then later on going to jazz. So I have to kind of preconception of what music was like. You know, have to kind of send a structure, like song, like structure. And when I've heard one of Lucas' compositions called the Baroque Variations, which is like a, a free piece, a free movement piece, and each of them is a deconstruction of a Baroque piece, I suddenly just kind of my, my eyes and ears opened because I've never heard anything like that in my life. It was almost like a weird dream or nightmare-ish of music. It's very, very strange experience to hear that. And then it's like, wow, this is what composing could be. And I think that that really gave me that idea of kind of explore the alternatives or you know, ways of composing. Yeah. Was it the sort of, you say the structure, was it the, the, sort of the mathematics, the scientific element of it, the complexity in that way? And, and perhaps because of your scientific background, you were maybe drawn to it or is that, or am I? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that, that piece is very, not very scientific in a way. It's more like a dream-like quality of it. It's because he... One, for example, the first movement, he basically just rubbed out a lot of notes in the handle level. It's so weird, it's almost a lot of silence with this kind of chord darting about. And suddenly your brain is playing trick because your brain is telling you there's some music in there, even though you don't hear it, it's silence. So in a way that I kind of realised that how much the brain, your, your you as a listener, contribute to the composition itself. Um, and, and the last movement is, is a deconstruction of a Bach Petita, which he had this dream of um, the, the piece of bark being washed into the sea and washed onto the shore. So all the, all the notes are bark, but they're all in out of sequence. It's a very, very, very strange piece. But that really kind of gave me an idea about composition. It's interesting because it must have been quite powerful to make you decide that that's the, the career you wanted to follow. Or... I think it was, but I think also in the sense that, as you said, you know, because I was trained in, in, in science, in engineering, so I, I, my, my brain worked in a certain kind of way. For me, the music that I find intriguing is the one that have an immediate emotional power, but underneath have a very kind of beautiful way of constructing it, very organised, very logical way of constructing it. It's like music by Stravinsky. Especially his later music, all the serial music he wrote, even though that they, they don't sound particularly like the early Stravinsky, they're very, very, still very emotional. But underneath they have a certain kind of Kind of logical construct about it, and same as Elbenberg, for example. Yeah, I find it very attractive. I find it very attractive because it's almost like a paradox. It's a, you know very mathematical, very calculated, but at the same time very emotional. Was there a moment? I mean, that was quite early on in your musical, your sort of classical upbringing, I suppose. But was there a moment later on where you really felt that you had quote unquote made it as a composer? Was it when you started your doctorate at Guildhall, or when you were? as you say, when you were shortlisted uh, with the Society for the Promotion of New Music, or was it when you got, had your proms premiere? Or... I, I think the, the moment kind of really kind of 
keep the kind of snowballing out. I think it's the moment that when I actually it's possibly the, the, the performance I had with Lontano. So the conductor, founder, Odilene de Martinez, she chose one of my pieces to be included in her concert. So she made the first radio broadcast of my piece. It's a tiny little free movement of a bigger wind quintet. So she performed it and it was broadcast. And I suppose that that really kind of started because I was, from, from that project, I was being asked by the BBC singers to write a piece for them. And then two years later, I have my first, well, several years later, I have my first piece commissioned for the Opera Festival. So it kind of just, I think from that moment that my music get played on the radio and then it kind of encouraged me. I suppose in a way that I started as almost like a longer and I always kind of feel the kind of inferior complex that, you know, you, you didn't have the training, you're not good enough. And then suppose that when, when people like Lucas Force and then Chachi, they pick up your music, they play it, they give you a sense of kind of assurance that you're actually doing it okay. Of course. I think, I think it's, it's quite important that, you know, as a young composer, that you, you just need a kind of assurance and, and kind of pat on the back. Gratification, yeah. I wonder if you're that unconventional route you took and that sort of loner aspect to your early part, the early part of your career. Do you think that has any upsides? Do you, have you grown in a different way that's given you advantages to somebody that's been through more established routes? I think so. I mean, I think in a way that I suppose that you know, from that route, I didn't really have the kind of burden of you know academia or, or teaching in a certain way. I just do whatever I wanted to do. I think in a way that I, I, I just don't really have a kind of sense of following the kind of procedure or have a fixed way of composing. I mean, that also became a problem later on in my career in the sense that I feel that my composing is more, almost like a magpie. I just pick up whatever I found interesting and just start doing it. And it was it was good up to the point because I, I just feel that there was a sense of freedom. But after a while, I just feel that sense of freedom had become a bit too free. And I just didn't really have a sense of kind of unified kind of personality in there. And that's the reason I kind of decided I really want to do it properly. And I, through doing a PhD at Guildhall, that really kind of helped me to, to understand who I was as a composer. I don't, I don't, I'm not just someone who just pick up ideas randomly. Underneath that, there was a sense of kind of one person treating music, writing a, a body of music would have a sense of kind of unity in there. Yeah. Sure. So that was, was that one of the main benefits of doing that doctorate? I mean, the obvious thing to me was that you have the opportunity to have your pieces performed and work on practicalities of what actually works in terms of music. But it was more about uh, channeling a specific voice of your own and creating an element of continuity in your yeah. work then. I think, it's, yeah, it's because I think the process needs time. I think the thing is that I was still, before that, I was still working full-time in IT, so I didn't really have the time and then the kind of mental energy because every day when I finish work, I'm going to go home, I'm so tired. I just couldn't really focus and, and do music properly. So I just thought that something got to give. I didn't really have to make a decision to, to see whether I really want to carry on working in IT, make the money, or focus on music. And so the music won. And in a way, that the time I free up, it really gave me the opportunity, the energies to really understand my route because my PhD was focusing on understanding the musical heritage. I mean, for me, for years, there's someone who came from Hong Kong. We, I didn't feel that I would have a strong heritage because we, we, we were Chinese, but we've been like a British colony for, for decades. And then the, the kind of the British influence is very strong. So it's, it's just kind of 
at the same time, we didn't really have a kind of like folk song, got a very strong tradition of it. So I always feel quite confused to to understand what my root or roots were. So I, I, I really used the opportunity of the PhD to really kind of clean up the mess, to kind of to organize things, to, to understand, to do research, really. on to talk about your latest release with the BBC Symphony Orchestra. So it's a recording of three of your large-scale orchestral works, The London Citizen, Exceedingly Injured, and The Song Cycle, The World Was Once All Miracle, and Symphony, which is for full orchestra and countertenor. The first piece you've described as a love letter to London, and there's a very we, we touched on it earlier, what, what attracted you to Lucas Foss music, but there's a very tightly controlled structure that sort of draws from various literary and musical sources. Can you explain what they are and how they work together in that piece? Sure. When I was planning to write a piece, that piece was meant to be the final piece of my PhD portfolio. I really wanted to write a piece about my experience to have lived in London for two decades. And at the title, I discovered the title about when I was writing that aforementioned piece for the BBC Singers, uh, that piece was about craziness, about madness. So when I was doing research, the name of Alexander Cruden, who wrote the first concordance to the St. James Bible, um, he wrote his pamphlet called The London Citizen Exceedingly Injured when he was being locked up in Bedlam. Um, I just found the title intriguing. That title kind of stayed in my mind for the several years. So when I was deciding to write an orchestral piece and then a piece about London, that title came back to me. So I, I kind of go by the title and then as I was doing more research, I discover that the, the Elgar Cooking Overture in London town, there was a theme inside the, the, the piece, the theme is called the citizen theme, which I got to match my title. I thought this is interesting. And then one of my favorite book, George Orwell, 1984, uh, it's talking about a London, but it's kind of slowly disappearing. It's been the, the memory of London being wiped out. Uh, and then the whole idea that throughout the book, the nursery rhyme, oranges and lemons keep coming back like a, like a motif. So I, I, I like the sense of the, the church bells, the, the motif of oranges and lemons, in a sense that kind of keep coming in almost like a ED fix. So that became my second inspiration of the piece. Yeah, and then there was in, in the piece there was a whole bunch of little themes about London. It's like Warren Williams, London Symphony, John Island, um, London Overture, little snippets in there, but they're not kind of obvious, they're kind of hidden for my own sake. Uh, but the whole piece is structured in a, almost like a concert for orchestra, but I call it a symphonic game because it's got to have a kind of playfulness about it. That, that playfulness is one of the things that strikes me most when listening to and, and especially towards the end where you, you it's almost like a, a Sondheim style with Drunkers, the drum pad. Yeah. The, it, it's not a directly sort of programmatic work as such. They're not, it's not describing particular things. Is it, but did you choose these references because they had a particular resonance for you in your impression of London? Like, for, or, or for example, did Cruden's, like his determination in compiling this Bible concordance, this index, which had not really been done before. Does that 
is that important to you because it reflected your own route into composing or, or did you see truth in Orwell's depiction of London in 1984 were you trying to was that a direct reflection of your London or is it not as simple as that no I don't I'm not quite sure it's not something you actually just mentioned it I did got me thinking that maybe there was a sense of kind of obsession or the kind of determination in Cruden's way of compiling the concordance maybe a part of it in a sense that there was the whole idea that from beginning up to the end of the piece there was a sense of kind of pulse kind of push that keep going through the whole thing and at the end the piece actually intend to start all over again so in a sense that maybe a sense of obsession but it's all the, the sense of determination and in the kind of i think it's more about the, the kind of personal view in a way because we couldn't have a very very specific way of seeing the world and seeing you know that he determines to write this concordance it's a very kind of person it's a very individual way of thinking about the world the sense of connectedness i think it's the way this kind of the reference in the concordance i find it interesting because one of the basic thing about my a lot of my music is about memories about quotations about how, how the memories work both in the sense of in the in the thematic development as well as how those material go into the head of the listener and, and how construct the image in the head. I think that Lundsvarsson, in a sense, is like an experiment for me to throw up a lot of ideas and quotations and, and kind of clues and, and, and kind of tease to see how much I can actually make the audience think or confuse. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a hell of a lot to unwrap as yeah. a listener. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of like reading... Um, reading a, a, like a really well-written book in that way and that you're constantly uncovering new... I, I think it's, 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 it's a, almost a sense of Joycean way of writing in a way that what you see on the surface is not what it is It's because there's so many layers. And I, I think every time you hear it, I, think, I suppose it's the kind of piece that you, you hear it, your ears kind of drawn to it every time you're drawn to different things. And listen to a Mahler symphony, every time you hear it, you hear different things. One of the most influential pieces for me was the Luciano Berrio Sinfonia because they have so much in it. It's, it's, it's almost on the point of overloading, but I just love it because you know every time you go back, you just hear it so differently. The second piece on the disc, The World, was Once All Miracle, which is, as I say, this song cycle with baritone solo. It's Roderick Williams in the recording. It, it sets fragments of verse by another Englishman, this time a Mancunian, Anthony Burgess, and that was commissioned by the Anthony Burgess Foundation. I gather you had first encountered Burgess through his book of essays, This Man and Music, and when you were commissioned, were already aware that he thought of himself as a composer who wrote books rather than the other way around. So purely coincidentally, you turned out to be the perfect person for the job. How did you go about choosing the texts for this song cycle? It, it was it was quite a challenge because he was such a prolific writer. It was so many novels and essays and, and stuff. So I was kind of going through a several novels and they were long. They were good writing, but I just couldn't quite see them as a setting them as music. It just did, didn't really work out of context. And then I I was kind of told that, that he wrote some poems as well. So I took collections of the poems called... Uh, the revolutionary sonnets and then through that I discover fragments of it that I can that really kind of jumped out at me and I thought oh I can actually work with those 
but a lot of the poems are quite long, so I, I end up using just a fragment of each one of them to create this almost like a musical portrait of him. Because I know that Burgess was really interested in music and words and the conflict between good and evil. So all the all the fragments I chose, I have something to do with that. Yeah. And how does that portrait evolve in the music then? What techniques do you sort of employ to achieve this this portrait? So each each of the each of the songs are kind of very individual, very distinctive kind of character. So, for example, the fifth song is actually based on the tongue row that I discover by written by Burgess because he Burgess actually trying out to, to write serial music. And in when I was doing research in the foundation, I discovered this sketch he did, which is like a twelve note tongue row uh, composition. And and I I just love the look of it, and I decided I want to copy it into that. Um, the first one is is like a introduction to the music. It's kind of quite broken, quite neurotic. It's a bit like him. It's a, he's quite slightly nervous, slightly edgy. When when you see interview of him, the second one and the third, uh, third one is more like a kind of reflective uh, songs about the, the character, about guilt, about love. Particularly, I think it's possibly worth mentioning is the first song. Because in my research, I discovered that Burgess went to live in Malay for several years in the 50s with his first wife. So I was finding it interesting that for me, as a Hong Konger who lived in the UK, and then Burgess did the reverse. So there was a sense of kind of quite weird kind of exchange. Um, so I kind of created this kind of imaginary Southeast Asian folk music, kind of ceremonial music in the background in the third song. On top of that, they, he was talking about love, but it's that like kind of slightly kind of reserved way of talking about it. And then the fourth song is a big kind of papuri of quotations. There was a lot of quotations of Debussy, Beethoven, all the composers. That meant a lot to Burgess. Yeah, right. Did you find it difficult to strike a balance between portraying him musically, but also trying to channel your own musical voice, your your compositional voice? Was there a tension there? I don't think so, because I think. I and Burgess were both autodidact as composers, so in a way, that I, I I find it quite attractive quality in the sense that you know he just used whatever he found useful for him, both in his music and and his his writing as well. I think there was some sense of connection between us, and I think that when I was writing, I didn't really feel you know there was being aged on the side by by Burgess. Even I think in a way that I was I feel that I was kind of just wearing a hat that I tried to pretend to be Burgess and kind of go for the the emotion. In the text, yeah, almost you're almost channeling him through your own compositional styles. Yeah, but but I think it's, it's in the same way that you know when composers writing operas, good opera composers they they should kind of drop their own ego when they are writing the music for the character. The the music should portray the characters, should you know to describe to kind of explain what goes through the head of the characters rather than the composers. I think in a way that when I was writing it, I kind of think more like an opera composer. You touched on it a little bit earlier, um, the fact that you were born in Hong Kong. I was interested in the liner notes of the disc that you very kindly sent me last night. I appreciate that. It describes your music as a case study, I'm quoting here, quote unquote, a case study in how a composer might construct a musical language while navigating cultural identities and a questioning of what authenticity can mean when home 
and foreign are no longer clear-cut terms. Is that a pretty accurate description of, of, of where you're coming from? It, it really was, because I think for years I was, I mean, as a kind of dedicated listener of, of Cantonese pop music, all the music that I grew up with, I thought they were my, they're, they're my music. And then only later on, when I came to the UK study, and I discovered a lot of them are just literally cover version of UK or US pop. That really kind of threw me because you know what I thought to be my heritage is actually not first hand; it's, it's second handed. So it, it kind of like you you suddenly get a bit uncomfortable. It's like disorientating, yeah. Yeah. So, so okay, what's my heritage? Because you know, it's, it's everything seems to be borrowed. So what? Where is home? Where is the root? And it's, it's a very, very curious kind of psychological issues to think that, you know, do I just not have a root at all? Yeah. I mean, there are works that you've written that very explicitly combine your Western uh, compositional yeah. techniques with Chinese culture. So your, your pieces like Mao Mao Yu, piano and four Chinese instruments, or Corner of a Foreign Field, that piece for, that Tangram commissioned in 2019, which... It's based on a folk song from a Chinese province. That's right. I mean, when you're writing these pieces, are you conscious of extracting from two separate cultures and combining them, or are you channeling something else completely? I think what was, when I was doing those pieces, I think, in a way, I just kind of really remind myself that, you know, this piece is written by me, so in a way that it's, it shouldn't be written by somebody else, meaning that, to do that piece, I have to write it through my own experience, how I actually came about those ideas and how the story that I, that I read and how those stories kind of related to me as a person. And for example, Mao Mao Yu is, is a very interesting case because I was doing research and I wrote three pieces that really like a tribute to kind of Chinese pop music, not, not Hong Kong, not Hong Kong, but in Chinese pop music. And through my research, I discovered that that genre of music is actually came from Shanghai in, in the early 20s when a lot of American, uh, a lot of black jazz musicians couldn't find work uh, in America. So they moved to Shanghai. So they, they have this kind of lot of dance hall, lot of dance band, and they have all these black musicians playing. And then they start working with Chinese musicians. So they, they start writing this new genre of music. At the same time, the recording company, Pathy, set up this division in Shanghai, so they start making gramophone. So they really encouraged those musicians to kind of create this new genre of music that really kind of suit the taste of Chinese audience. So they have this kind of really weird combination of like Chinese folk music turned into kind of jazz combo song. So Ma Mao Yu was the first recorded Chinese pop music. It was, it was it's kind of quite weird because it's kind of quite long-winded because I really want to find out where Cantonese pop came from. So I kind of researched my route back like several decades out, and then I realized it came from that genre of music called Shizaku, which is the music of the time. Because that genre of music used to be called yellow music, because in Chinese, yellow actually means pornographic. So because, because the, 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 the Communist Party thinks that that kind of song talking about love is, is pornographic, so they got it labeled and called yellow music. And I just realized that all how all this kind of jazz music kind of feed into my musical heritage. Even though I'm a jazz pianist, I didn't ever, never knew that that was actually much more deep-rooted than just plain jazz. Do you think that working on that piece, for example, brought you closer to that side of your heritage, your, your Hong Kong heritage? It, it really did, because I, I kind of realised that, you know, it's, when you're looking at that kind of thing, you don't, you don't just look at the present, you don't, you don't look at the kind of immediate present, you kind of dig deeper. 
and then kind of make me realize that a lot of a lot of things that what you see on the surface is not what it is it's, it's always worth kind of looking deeper into soil because it's always you find something kind of link yes to things that you never thought before mm. and there's no no matter how small those links are you can always kind of explore them and, and realize that those links actually quite, could be quite important yeah that's once again going back to that idea of peeling back the layer yeah exactly and, yeah is there a can we is there a layer to peel back in your in the disc that with the bbc so that might extract something about your hong kong heritage is there anything to unwrap there Oh, I don't know because I think if I say it black and white out loud, I think people just will can horn into that and they'll just like, oh, this is how I should listen to it. I think to be safe, I will not say it because in a way, that I just want people to listen to the piece and and make their own decision about it. I think that's the only it's only fair for the pieces to be to be just that way. I mean, like all my music, I don't tell my audience how to listen. I present I present the music. You decide how to listen to it and you decide what it feels like. I mean, for example, symphony is is a very a very personal piece because in a way it really drawn a lot of experience for me as a as a gay man who kind of grew up in Hong Kong but came to London in in, in the early 90s when the AIDS epidemic was still raging and you know when you kind of witness your your friends and, and acquaintances just decaying or disappearing there's all I can say that how, how it should have to kind of my past kind of fit into the piece and also, my I, I'm I'm a, I'm I'm a huge fan of disco music, so therefore that one of the movement have a disco prestige, so to speak. It's almost like a tribute. It's like a tribute to people that who actually the, the pioneer of disco music who were mostly gay and black. So I think I think those kind of things kind of fit into it. But I mean, as far as the Hong Kong heritage, I don't really know. The thing is, I think I think in my music, in my music, I just kind of keep the open mind, keep kind of pay attention to listen to it and because there's, there's so much details in there that you, you don't necessarily pick it up first time or second time but I think I, I think like all music that you, you need to listen to it more than once to really to get the feel and get the understanding of it. Before we go, I just want to say a quick thank you to Ray for coming on to the podcast and also the team at Wildcat for facilitating that chat. Sam, is there anyone you want to thank? Uh, a quick thank you to Cat McDermott for doing some lovely voice work as part of our analysis. That was very kind of you. Thanks, Cat. Mm. There are a couple of big birthdays to look out for in the coming week. The Supreme Georgie Kurtag turns 95 on Friday the 19th of February, so do go and have a listen to anything by him. I recommend his opera Fin de Partie, based on Samuel Beckett's Endgame, for a cerebral workout. More challenging than the Marvel equivalent, that one, isn't it? John Dowland was apparently born on the 20th, Carl Cherney on the 21st, and Handel on the 23rd, which is a pretty good run for half a week. And the 24th marks the 414th anniversary of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo, the first performance 
uh, which was like one of the first recognised operas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. One final thing to look out for. From Monday the 15th of February until the 27th, you can book a 10-minute slot on the Opera North website for a member of its orchestra or chorus to entertain you personally online. Hilariously, <laughs> they've given us no clue as to what that entertainment involves, but the scheme is called One to One with capital O's and N's. Uh, and it's on a pay-as-you-feel basis, so presumably the obligation is on the performers to actually make it good. I hope there'll be all sorts in there, maybe some juggling, other party tricks, who knows. Mm -hmm. We'd also like to take a quick moment to remember the great Chick Corea, who died last week from a rare form of cancer aged 79. An incredible performing career saw him work with the likes of Miles Davis and Anthony Braxton. Songs like La Fiesta, Armando's Rumba and Spain have all become jazz standards and he had a brilliant mind for orchestral music too. In fact, he'd been working on a trombone concerto for the New York Phil and a percussion concerto for the Philadelphia Orchestra before he died. A huge loss and a very smiley great man. (laughs) 